spent so much money investing in the team. Like they've got this Swedish coach, and they they hired this Swedish Swedish coach over over Australian candidates. And the whole idea was he was going to build all this greater depth. And he says he's built all this depth, but then when the game on the line, he brings on a 35 year old central defender who's like big and tall. And can they can she like head it in at a corner? It's almost like so you haven't built depth. You're relying on a 35 year old defender to try and score. Yeah. And equalize it. Someone's like, have you fulfilled your remit? What was the score in the end? 3 2. 3 2. Do you see um, people were, I think it was like right wing, like Herald Sun and stuff, were like, oh, Australians were lying to the public and their fans when they didn't tell anyone that Sam Kerr wouldn't be playing. I thought that was fascinating culture wars. <laughs> it's up there with like Pat Cummins has gone work. <laughs> Pat Cummins finally wins a toss today. Did! Yeah? Did! And like the ball, everyone's like, Fucking Cummins sucks. Why would he like to bowl and bowl him out? Yeah, and, and Cummins under grey skies can bowl. <laughs> Mitchell Stark, demon spell. Um, all right, welcome to the event screen. Oppenheimer, let's go. Oh, no, 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 Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer, my name's Justin Corbett, and I'm joined in person by Tom Kelly. How are you, Tom? I'm very well. Good. Um, why are we in person? Oh, I'm, I'm going to be in dad soon, and... Um, my wife is uh, due to give birth very soon, so we're just going to hang out for a bit. You might need a new co-host. I don't know uh, over August or September. You've you've been away in Bali, um, and I've been living vicariously through your Instagram. <laughs> and now we're here, so I, we're uh, a bit over a week away from uh, the baby being due. And I thought this was a good chance to nice hang little out. final hangout. Uh, maybe watch some cricket, maybe watch a movie, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then we really needed to get to this because movies are back. Movies are back. How good cinema? Cinema's back. Total so cinema. In the past month, we've had Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Barbie, and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Sorry, um, I'm just going to do the... That's going to come up occasionally. Sorry. That's, and what is that? that? Oh, shit me, right? Um, so that is an alcohol-free bourbon and coke because obviously I don't want to be that guy and have a couple of drinks and then Sam's like, we have to go to the hospital right now. So I am off drinks um, until the baby's born and then me and Sam are back on drinks. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was about... 10 minutes earlier, Sam was like, you're on drinks, I'm on drinks. Uh, it's alcohol-free house, so I've got a little uh, Heaps Normal. Thanks for sponsoring the podcast, <laughs> Heaps Normal. Is that right? Um, alcohol-free lager. This Another one, lager. This one time, but the next time we'll be back and it'll be like extra dry platinum or something. Because <laughs> that's all we'll be able to afford, or you'll be able to afford. No, nah, let's go. Here. Like, platinum's are dangerous, aren't they? Who <laughs> <laughs> was the last time they made a platinum? Uh, we were probably 18. And vomiting in someone that's to whiskey's backyard. That's about right. Um, I also just this is going completely off the cuff now. Um, Jackson's on George is back. I saw, um, but it's it, the food menu looks fucked. But like is Jackson's on George, like the four level one where you just get yeah. lost. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the we've had some weird. It was like there. the McDonald's playground of for nineteen year olds. Yeah, where it's almost like it's all multi level. You can go upstairs. What's up here? It's like. Um, is this like some sort of weird, damp sci-fi nightclub? I think Jackson's on George is one of the ones where we went once and we went to one of the middle levels and then 
we were obviously drunk and I stood at the top of the stairs and told people it was a private function and they had to pay to get in and no one paid to get in. I'm like, I'm going to make some money here. And this security guy came up. I'm like, hello, sir. And just quietly walked away. How old were you? Uh, when we went, probably 19. Probably Western Sydney kids in the city for the first time. Like, woo I'd say that's about right. I did want to talk to you. Maybe I might spring this on you later, um, but I'll sort of write a reply right now so you've got an idea. Um, top five um, fictional film venues. Okay. Places that exist only in film that you would want to hang out in. Okay. We'll do it later. Yeah, later. We'll finish on that right at the end. Okay. I'll think about it while we're doing that. Um, so, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, you've seen Oppenheimer and not Barbie, and I've seen Barbie and not Oppenheimer. When are you seeing Oppenheimer? This weekend. Uh, we're seeing Barbie this weekend as well. Okay. So, so the weekend we'll be, double, yeah. We'll be able to, we'll talk about them both without spoiling either one of them and just kind of our thoughts. But um, they obviously both came out on the same day and it's been like a massive cultural moment of Barbenheimer. Um, as movies, what, what do they actually have in common apart from the fact that they both launched their product in Japan? You did the joke. You I've, did the meme. I've been saving that for so long. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, too soon? Is it too soon to make that joke? What? What, 1945? Yeah. I think, I think we're good. good. I think we're yeah, good. Yeah. I think we, if, we, if we can make 9-11 jokes, I think we're okay. Yeah, okay, good. Um, well, I think, talking about the two films, I think we have two prestige filmmakers. Christopher Nolan has been like, not quite the king of Hollywood, but like a really bankable return return, and all his films, you would say probably post The Dark Knight are now sort of seen as cinematic events. And Greta Gerwig post... Um, Little Women. Little Women and... Uh, Lady Bird. Lady Bird. She is... Well, she's hot at the moment. And she's seen as sort of a really interesting director and now has the full sort of creative budget behind her. And also Margot Robbie's backing. I think, do you I want was, to pick up on it? I was going to say, like later down the line, but we might as well talk about now whether Margot Robbie is like one of the best producers in Hollywood yeah. right now. So Lucky Chap is her production company. And Sorry, that's the dog drinking water, by the way. <laughs> no, no, that's how you drink out of your yeah, glass sure. of fake bourbon. <laughs> um, so Margot Robbie essentially bought the rights to make a Barbie movie like five years ago. From Mattel? Or like so buy the rights from Mattel, but Sony had the rights to make it for a decade. Yeah. And never did. And then that expired. And then so Margot Robbie bought it and was kind of tossing around ideas to do it. And essentially Greta Gerwig called her up and was like, I really want to make this movie. And so they went to like the other production companies and Mattel and stuff. And there's this great interview that Margot Robbie did where... Someone asked, like, how did you get so much of the stuff in the movie, which we won't spoil, across the line? Because it's, like, real out there and it's real full on. And it's, like, not a spoiler to say that it's, like, super feminist and there's some adult jokes in there. And It's meta. There's meta, meta commentary yeah. going on about it, yeah. And um, Margot and Greta, first name basis, were talking about the, the meetings that they had and essentially that... Margot Robbie went in knowing that if she takes in the most far version that they can with a million things that they're going to argue against, then they lose sight of the things they actually need to argue against. If you yeah. go in like one or two, they push back, but she went in with like a million things that they'd argue against 
And so they didn't argue against any of them because it was too much. And she like backed Greg Gerwig and her partner, Noah Baumbach, who co-wrote the script. So I think like one of the best producers going around right now, because when you see the movie, you'll sit there and think like, how the fuck is this like a a movie about Barbie? How did this get made sort of thing? I think there's almost like the story of the film is not necessarily what happens in the film. And I'm sort of curious about that, but it's how did this get made when we're in an era and we've talked about this at length before about to make anything for for a big budget, you needed needed to be this cinematic figure like a Nolan who can make something. He can make a biopic about a scientist that a lot of people haven't heard about. Yeah. And turn that into like a $170 million opening weekend film. Uh, Not a lot of people can do that. Yeah. And it's three hours and it's R-rated. Exactly. Like who who other than Christopher Nolan can make that movie? Yeah. Maybe a J.J. Abrams. Maybe. Maybe not anymore like nah. Star Wars and stuff like that. I don't think there is anyone. Like the the big test will be because it's like it's a biopic but otherwise it's like original. It's not part of a franchise or anything like that. The next big one will be Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon because that's an Apple show or an Apple movie but it goes in cinemas for like a month beforehand and that's like three and a half hours and R-rated. So if that does big money as well, but I don't even think that'll do Oppenheimer. No, I don't. I think it will fulfill that niche, the the hardcore Scorsese viewership, but I don't think that has the box office commercial appeal that Nolan has because Nolan brings in the bros. Like it or love it. It's almost like guys who watched like The Dark Knight... 15 Inception. years ago. Yeah, you know what I mean? It brings that and it's a different film for that. I didn't want to go away from the Greta Gerwig chat and Barbie because I think it's interesting that, well, this is the next chain of IP that we're going to look at is these sort of... Toys. Ma- yeah, toys and brands as film. We've already sort of seen it earlier this year with Air where can we turn... Tetris. Can we turn a, br- a brand into a movie? Yeah, did you see that Mattel have already announced a Polly Pocket movie? I did. <laughs> Directed by Lena Dunham with uh, that Lily is more Collins. surprising. Yeah, um, I was going before we go and go in each movie. Can, can you explain to me what a Polly Pocket is? Because I don't know. A Polly Pocket was, I think, kind of like the size of a Tamagotchi. Right. So it fits in your pocket, and then you open it up, and there's like a like a thumb sized doll in there with all her accessories. And then you could open, so you could carry your Polly around with you in your pocket. But then when you got home, you could put her into her houses that you have at home. So it was like Barbie, but shrunk down to be portable, I think. Wow. <laughs> there, so there, I don't know what they're going to do with that movie. There is a like a New York filmmaker. It's like Seneticky, New York. He's. A, can you give me a second? Yeah. Um, so, while you look that up. So before we go into each individual film, I wanted to quickly talk about how much the Barbenheimer weekend benefited both movies. Oh, enormously. I think those two films don't make the return that they do without the other. Yeah. And I think this event doesn't happen. And I think it's interesting that Warner Brothers were like, when this first happened, the announcement that they were pretty pissed. Yeah. No, they they weren't pissed. So... It was the other way around. Yeah, Christopher Nolan used to make all these movies for Warner Brothers and then left to go make Oppenheimer with someone else. I can't remember who else. Um, and so Warner Brothers scheduled Barbie the same weekend as Oppenheimer yeah. to fuck over Christopher Nolan. Right. But then, good for them, because Barbie's made $500 million in five days. Yeah. 
but like they've just benefited Shala so much. Is like, that why Christopher Nolan never played ball with any of the the soft hand gliding? Yeah, about like we're all gonna go see each other's movies yes, with their tickets in front of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why because he got pissed about obviously them putting all their movies to max during the pandemic, yeah. and they did that to Tenet and fucked Tenet over. And then so he had a really big thing about Tenet that it needed to be on a certain date. Yeah, because did the, the the dates like a palindrome date? Yeah, actually goes works Fuck, both like, ways. Th- like that's too much in your own head, mate. <laughs> so um, I don't know. You, you tell me in a sec. But my Barbie screening, uh, I went to the EQ and it was packed. Like this is movies are back. Like we went Thursday night, so opening night in Australia. You dressed up. I saw that. Everyone was in pink. Like like all, it's all like my Star mates. Wars again. Yeah, like when. When it came back, Force Awakens, and everyone was in the thing. Um, We were going to do the double feature, which we talked about heaps. um, But Luke Harborn, who listens to this podcast, um, booked Barbie on the wrong day and booked it on the Thursday, and then said that, "Oh, I thought we'd just all take the day off to see Oppenheimer during the day." (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen. What's what was the meme where it was almost like? Oppenheimer, you start that with a cigarette, black coffee, 11 a.m. Yeah. Oppenheimer, and then you, once you come out of that, you think about life, you get some margaritas, then you go in a Barbie, a little bit tipsy, and then you go out after two. Girl like, dinner yeah. afterwards. Girl dinner, cheese boards, just snacking. Um, so yeah, Barbie for me on that Thursday night was like full, first time I've been in a full cinema in like years and years. Everyone in pink, everyone laughing, everyone losing their mind. Did you see an EQ as well? Yeah. What was Oppenheimer? Same. We saw the EQ, but Saturday afternoon while you're at the beer and food. Don't know if that's even in that. Maybe that's that's pre-pod chat. Um, So we went Saturday afternoon and it was pretty much full. I looked to see if we could go on the Friday night and that was sold out. We couldn't get the... Well, not quite sold out, but it was almost like... Well, how, how wild is that that there's sold out films in Australia right now well uh, after talking that's the dog by the way you know what I mean we're in the the same room just vibe the background noise sorry (laughs) agent of chaos sorry where was I Uh, like why a three hour R rated film with no IP behind it is like a sold out movie on a Thursday and Friday night does that talk about our need for original content can actually get people back to the cinema and that we're actually facing this fatigue uh, there's no doubt that Nolan carries that as a cinematic event and then the Barbie sort of marketing team has created that phenomenon and obviously the casting where you've got as you've already said Margot Robbie running that I spent more money on marketing than they did on the film I totally believe that I think the film was 145 million uh, budget and the marketing was 150 million dollar budget I saw something today it was like can we get the people who did um, the marketing for Barbie can we get them to fix climate change <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like, can, just, can we, just meet with some scientists and figure out how to actually promote climate change. So really, it's the Barbenheimer. That's what yeah, you're right. asking for here. Yeah. Um, so it was both of them. And you said like a need for not only like original non-IP content, but like old school, like almost old school filmmaking in yes. the sense that like neither of these films have CGI which was a big thing that I noted. High value on practical effects that we... The, this is the biggest grossing international weekend and US weekend since what? Avengers Endgame, which is... Combined, it's the biggest ever. Yes. Yeah. No, no, that's one time. Oh, as, yeah. as a cinematic weekend of just like... Because I don't think either of those films beat it, do they? From a 
Um, Nowhere near it, are they, from a grossing perspective? Not on their own. But together. Yeah. And I think that's the whole idea. It's like, I don't care if you're going to see Barbie first and watching Oppenheimer a week later because I do feel, as we've said, if you've consumed that marketing, you're going to go see both films. Yeah. I don't know if I would necessarily go see Barbie if it was standalone, like, two months ago. But because it's against Oppenheimer and because that's such a dramatic contrast, it's like, yeah, I want to consume that media. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, exactly to that point, is that a week after they've come out, screenings for each of them are still sold out. Yeah. Like, in, in America, it's a bit different, but in Australia, it's like, you'll very rarely see a full cinema for anything on, a, on an opening weekend, let alone two weekends after. Yeah. But they're still sold out this weekend. So, obviously, a lot of people have, exactly like you said, been caught up in the, the hype of them both, that they're like, look, I'm not... A film enough nerd to do the double on a single day, but I, I will life, do one. And you know, other. like I've got stuff going on. I can't <laughs> give away seven hours to sitting in a Mate. dark room by myself. For if a- it wasn't for Harbo, I would have done both. Sure. <laughs> Just pop a what is- cigarette in the middle. Because I think we've obviously listened to some of the same content this week. The whole idea of what in LA they had like a six AM screening of an IMAX. Yes, like movie church. Let's do it. Six AM Oppenheimer screening, and it was sold out. Love it. I love it. <laughs> we live in the wrong city. So how about we actually talk about it specifically? Um, I might ask you some, some questions about Barbie. What's your feelings about the film rather than the event, the actual thing? Uh, I thought it was amazing. Um, we like went in a group and the cinema was packed and you kind of get all caught up in that whole thing of like everyone's laughing and everyone's kind of loving it. But as a movie, it was hilarious. Um, Ryan Gosling should be nominated for an Academy Award. Margot Robbie should be nominated. Like, they're doing... Even though it's, like, just an out-and-out comedy... Yeah. There are really, really, like, meaningful, heartfelt moments from both of them that you just don't expect. Like, whatever you... It's hard to talk about beyond saying how great it is and hilarious. Like, we were cackling so much. Um, They use, like, a, a narrator throughout, which, like comes in it's super meta and really really funny like they do some great jokes um they're aware of like you'd think no one is aware about barbie as much as greta gerwig is in the world because like they have like these meta jokes about the great things about barbie and the bad things about barbie and like really pull attention to it and stuff but just as an out and out comedy they should still both be nominated and screenwriting, if not directing, for Greta Gerwig for sure. It, which is wild considering it's a toy film about a Barbie doll. It is wild, right? But this is it's where insane. we are in our media. Yeah. And Apple TV still going for it. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm interested in is that it, from what I've seen on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, about the practical effects and how the sets were actually built, that they actually had a really set criteria, what is allowed, what the color palette's going to be, that we're not going to use CGI. It feels like, and you're doing all that, but also this huge, enormous spectacle on screen, but shot in a sound studio pretty much. Yeah. And to, to the degree of like production designers, which are the people that like do the sets and props and everything, they were literally building their Barbie dream house to scale in the sense of when you take a Barbie doll and you put her in her house, 
how far is her head from the ceiling of her house? And they're playing around with the scale. And then so yeah. they literally did that with Margot Robbie and said, Margot Robbie's head needs to be X amount of centimeters from the ceiling of her Barbie dream house. Like if she stands on top of her dream house, how big is she in comparison to the rest of the dream house? And they measured that stuff and built the set based off that. And like, no matter where you are in the dreamland, in Barbie land, you like, always know where you are like oh so good but the, there's a geography and topography to it and the size and scale and the thought yeah. process uh, it reminds me of like this 1950s i suppose like i can't think of an exact example of that right now but i think about like hail caesar um that was the film made by what's the, what are the coen brothers yeah, yeah. in like 2016 where it was talking about old hollywood 1950s and making these huge practical sort of effects on film and making these this big sort of Roman epic. And it's not doing that, but this whole idea of practical effects, large-scale spectacle cinema, hmm. but done with this lens of Barbie commercialism, capitalism, and the meta-commentary around that with feminism and fucking fascist boys and shit like that going on. <laughs> there is fascist boys. There's the, like... Ryan Gosling is going so hard as Ken um, and you can kind of see you could kind of tell in all the press that he was doing beforehand because he'd be like intentionally dumb in press interviews yes. and like just letting Margot speak and wouldn't like talk to wouldn't I, talk I unless found that spoken interesting. to yeah. yeah because that's his character like that's not giving a, a spoiler away because like the whole marketing has been built around all these Barbies are XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. And then every single time there's a man on the post, it's like, he's just Ken. He's also Ken. Oh, it's Ken again. Yeah. So they don't matter. He's an accessory because Ken is an accessory to Barbie. Yeah. You don't buy a Ken doll. And he said he had that great line where he's like, anyone who's going to get angry about Ken's portrayal clearly never had a Ken. No one's ever thought about Ken until this moment. Yeah. And that's like the whole big, like, fucking Ben Shapiro and right-wing people like that who never played with a Barbie in their life, but then make an hour-long video about how Barbie's, like, too woke and shit and the movie's crap and it stuff. It really go, goes against the the sort of, you know, the conventional wisdom. If you go woke, you go broke. With 100, what is it? Was it? $500 million yeah. in five days. You know? Broke, mate. They go, nah. <laughs> no, no. Margot right. Robbie, she's done. That's the second high, individually, not talking about combined with Oppenheimer individually second highest grossing film of all time after Endgame (laughs) they went broke man they went and like fuck it's a woke movie as well (laughs) but like it's great it's really good for that Um, what else without spoiling is there anything that I should look out for is there any is there a cameo or is there a part of the film or is there anything that a favourite part that you can sort of lend in without spoiling anything um because I'm a bit confused by the plot. Yes, yeah, so Barbie leaves Barbie land. I won't give away the plot, but when Barbie leaves, when did Barbie... the Nazis turn up? Like Indiana yeah. Jones. They're if if uh, about the third act. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the it gets. You might have heard this in my other podcast. It gets a bit iffy. It's still very funny, but it gets a bit iffy in the second act. Yeah. And you might be wondering, where's this going? But then it pulls it back around. So don't worry about that. It's still good, but like... Figgy Wall Bridge, like, winks at the camera and it's all okay again. Don't talk about any of it. I've got some thoughts. Okay. <laughs> um, 
not many cameos that you don't already know are in it, but Michael Sarah. I think we're in a Michael Sarah. Oh, I love Michael Sarah so much. I, I think we're in a Renaissance. If you already love him so much, him as Alan. Do you know anything about Alan? You've told me about this previously, yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about it on a point yeah. where um, Alan was brought out just as Ken's friend, and they only ever brought out one model of him in like a colorful shirt. And Ken's pair of friend sounds like a, a euphemism that it's almost like. This is actually like two gay men are actually married and they're going around for Christmas. But it's like, <laughs> mum is like, this is Ken's friend, Alan. Yeah, because yeah, the box says all of Ken's clothes fit him. So they're clearly <laughs> switching clothes. Um, they're like, just always, not that you don't, uh, but anyone who might go to the cinema and like check a phone occasionally or have a bit of a chat. Yeah. Like, just pay attention because there's like so many quick, deep cut Barbie jokes that are like obviously re- referencing real things and researched but like you wouldn't believe that it's real like certain certain Ken's come in or old Barbie yeah. um, side characters and stuff um, wait out for uh, hang out for Midge I won't explain anything oh, okay. else just, just wait for Midge um, but yeah great oh, just to wrap up the, the Barbie chat so I found what I was talking about earlier are you familiar with the collective works of Charlie Kaufman yes Right, so like what Ben John Malkovich adaptation, Synecdoche, New York, where it's just really fucking weird meta shit where there's layers, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like a Russian belly. Over and over and over and over. You open it up, it gets yeah. smaller and it gets weirder. That's what I'm thinking for Polly Pocket sort of thing. <laughs> so it's like a human-sized Polly Pocket and she finds out there's been a toy made for her and there's like a little inside person. Yeah, you know what I mean? And the existential crisis that figuring out you're just a person in somebody's pocket. Did you watch the first... Um, episode of the new season of black mirror no journey's awful that's very meta that's like someone watching a netflix show made about their life that they didn't sign up for and then like things happening to them in real life and then the next day an episode comes out starring someone like it's good watch it i'll have to get around to it um that's black mirror is something that i have weird feelings about okay i've said about that too i've never returned to it since like the first episode because I was just too it's weird. a hard rewatch oh yeah that <laughs> one doesn't age well yeah I think um, Brit and I did a rewatch of a few episodes and we found one that has a happy ending she's like oh let's watch more and then we had three in a row that were not happy ending she's like I can't do this anymore <laughs> just massive depresso I'm interested in the like I've always been interested in the concept and what they're doing but I always find it hard to commit yeah this, this season wasn't that great but um, Oppenheimer right. so my opener to you yes is uh Christopher has is famous for like almost just as much the scripts and the idea as the screenwriting yes so you're like interstellar about space and time inception about dreams um memento about memory back and forth even the batman inception trilogy, too, yeah, yeah yeah even the uh, batman trilogy has a lot of that but i watched insomnia uh the other day which isn't written by him. It was very much like a director for hire starring Al Pacino and uh, Robin Williams. Playing what, an LA detective? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that's my favourite yeah. Al Pacino. He's pretty much playing, uh, what's Vincent his name? Hanna? Vincent Hanna from Heat. But I watched that, which was someone else's script that Christopher Nolan just directed last movie he did before Batman Begins. And it's not particularly good. It's got like 92% Rotten Tomatoes, but I was kind of like a bit... It's a bit bored. whatever. Like you couldn't tell at all that Christopher Nolan had directed this could have been anyone picked up the camera and directed this movie 
So I going into Oppenheimer having not seen it and you've seen it is like I've heard the reviews and it's amazing. But my assumption is like he's doing a biopic with not necessarily any kind of broad ideas. Oh no, the the ideas are there. I find a bit I'm a bit mixed on the reception of it. And I think the things that people have spoken about that they didn't like, there's some things they might say dragged or he hasn't stuck the landing with things. Those are things that I feel like this dog is a, is a lot at the moment. I apologize. <laughs> that I feel like I really enjoyed those aspects, but I can totally understand why a critic or a film goer might be feel a bit different about that sort of thing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I feel like I can't... T- the, well, the whole idea of is who is Oppenheimer and the key idea of it is why is Oppenheimer the most important person to have ever lived? That is your key big idea about it. And it's about our place in history and these the chain events that have occurred and that have that will occur or could potentially occur in the future. It's super in his head, isn't it? What do you what do you as in Nolan or Oppenheimer or Oppie? Like, it's like his his perspective, his point of view, like what is he leaving behind and as humans, what do we leave behind and what effect do we have on people and stuff? And that what is his legacy? And his legacy may not even be known yet. And it might be known in the future. Where we are now what we've got Russia in the Ukraine. We've got this idea of like India, Pakistan. We've got China in the South China Sea. In the sense that like we're 60 years after him and we haven't dropped another nuclear bomb yet. We haven't dropped it yet, but all these sort of nuclear powers are in one way or another in tension or in conflict. And it's almost like, how much would it take? Yeah. And then the whole idea of we hold our own keys to destruction. And it doesn't matter that it hasn't happened in 60 years, but when it happens. So... I saw a thing and you might not be able to talk about it without spoiling it, but that it switches between black and white and color. Yes. And he did this in Memento, but that was like one black and white was going like one direction in time and color was going in the other. And once you actually figure that out, it's really, really cool, but it takes like three watches. But this one's like, I saw a thing that like one black and white's objective views and colors subjective from like how he perceived the events or something. I don't want to give too much away, but the easiest way I would read it is color is Oppenheimer's perspective. Okay. That way around. Yeah. Uh, This is the, it's a film that I want to see again. I think it's something that you need to watch maybe two or three times and it will open up and you'll have different interpretations of what no one is trying to do. And that's, I think that's where we might be from a critical debate where people sort of questioning, has he landed the plane, especially in this last hour? And I want to, don't want to talk about it, but you've probably read sort of... I've seen that the last, like, yeah, the last hour is a bit like very, well, very controversial, not well, bad or good. I really liked it. Yeah. Because the film hit a peak at the two hour mark and then it's almost like, what's next? And it's almost like, we have got 70 minutes of film still to go mm. and we've, this has just occurred what's going to happen next I don't know and I like going into the film and this is what happens always with films like you listen to a podcast and someone's like oh now I want to watch it or read it I want to go back well I'm now completely invested in the history of it I want to learn about it and I walked away from that and I really enjoyed it Um, the reason I asked you is it like really in his head and maybe this is the where the difference happens between objective and subjective 
But um, this is such Nolan por- words. I know, I know. We're talking about a Nolan film. Um, portions of I don't know if it's the whole script or if it's like the subjective portions of the script, but the not the words, but the direction in the script is written in first person, oh, which man. is obscene. But like, it'll be Oppenheimer. Um, like he says his dialogue yeah. and then it's written as if it's a novel in first person where he's like then he walked up to me and he said next person lines so that must be like I don't know I don't know if that's the whole script but I just saw portions of it where someone has the audacity to write direction in a screenplay in first person is mind blowing oh again I need a second or third view <laughs> What, uh, I've got a joke for you though. Yeah. It's Dan. <laughs> Sorry that I can't add on that because I'm almost like, oh mate. I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to talk about a Christopher Nolan movie without spoiling a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, like, uh, I, I wish I could contribute to that sort of point, <laughs> but I feel like I can't. Yep. Um, but he has cast himself again. Christopher Nolan has? Yes. Yeah. So he's got an actor playing a Christopher Nolan character. Oh, what? Yes. I thought many ca- you, he cast himself as in he's playing a character. No, no. Are you not aware of this sort of phenomenon of what he does in films? No. Where he casts... The, the, it is a character. It is a Christopher Nolan character. It is his surrogate. It's his avatar within the film. Who? What other movies? Dom Cobb. Okay. Oh, I've heard about that thing where Dom Cobb's essentially like a film director. And, and he's... And, and like, if you actually think about it, how he dresses and looks, it's Christopher yeah, Nolan. Yeah, and like... Um, at the time, Ellen now Elliot Page was like a production designer. Yeah, because she was the one that builds the maps, and um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was like an assistant director yes. and stuff. Yeah, okay, I've heard that. So Josh Josh Hartman. Yep. What R- Renaissance? Yeah, again. I know. <laughs> um, he's pretty good in it. Is um, he is definitely the Christopher Nolan sort of character, even though that is a historical figure, and it probably looks like it's is he an Oppenheimer biographer. No. Okay, don't tell me anything else then. Just um, throw that up. Robert Downey Jr. Good. Yeah, I fucking loved it. I love all the stories of um, even Robert Downey Jr. himself coming out and saying that like uh, he loved his time on in the Marvel Universe and he made, was making like $25 million a movie at the end, but he kind of felt like he forgot how to act. Yes. Because <laughs> he was just well, playing himself in those movies. He playing himself and it is a, any time he's in a big cinema sort of release like this, it is an absolute joy. Yeah, and I feel like it 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 shows where his interests are. This type of film with Oppenheimer, because he was executive producer on Perry Mason. He was thinking about actually playing Perry Mason, but then it was almost like, can I do this? Yada yada yada. TV up, show. Yeah, ended up just just running the show anyways, like head of product, uh, head of his production house. Yada yada yada. Um, but it felt like this sort of period piece, this sort of deception spy thing going on. And then, but all under the lens of Cold War post bomb. Yeah. And the the arms race that was occurring, and at the hit the role he plays in that as well, because the the big debate. I'm not really giving that much away. The the debate going from an atomic bomb to a hydrogen bomb, which is like ten times bigger and obviously ten times scarier. Sort of. Oh my god. <laughs> um, it did. It did. It was panic attack inducing. Yeah. Yeah. The scale. Um, the thing I really enjoyed is when the screen is just the visual, and it is no CGI. Well, I don't. I think some of these scenes must have been CGI. Apparently not. The, yeah, the, there's, there's. I don't know because you'll see in the first ten minutes where he's having 
Oppenheimer, you could argue, is having a mental break where he's seeing shit. Yeah. And it's almost like, okay, what's going on there? And the way that the screen moves and it's talking about, obviously, this huge scale of the graphics that are occurring on the screen, but it's fucking Newton's. It's fucking minuscule shit that you could never fucking see with you. Just making something big. Yeah, but taking the, the minuscule and making it fucking enormous and ripple and rage against you. The the cinema is shaking all around you and it's almost like, wow, this is spectacular. What's going on here? So, all right. Well, we can try to maybe do a spoiler talk next week once I've seen it. Yeah, I yeah. think then we go hard. Then yeah. we go hard and try to figure that, out what the fuck we, Nolan's doing. Yeah, and then we can t- both talk about like how the Nazis are in both films. <laughs> yeah, you'll see the Nazis in Barbie. Yeah. Uh, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about um, Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. Yes. All right, we are back. We are going to spoil Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible because they've been out for, I think, long enough. You've had enough time. Um, I know your opinion on Indiana Jones, but you don't know mine. Um, I think yours was lukewarm. Let's just say that I went to Bali for two weeks, which is why we haven't recorded in a while. And for 24 hours, I was on the toilet. Um, I saw Indiana Jones before I went to Bali. Came back, got barley belly, went to the toilet, turned around, looked in the toilet, and that was Indiana Jones. No! I hated it. I hated it. Okay. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So... Okay, so what? tell me why you hated it. I want to talk about it and Mission Impossible in the same breath because I think one is how you do it right and one is how you do it wrong and I think it actually kind of wraps up in our I think we've got different views on these movies I know oh is it completely flipped okay I don't well, no 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 not completely flipped I think mine's more tempered but I'm very go you go I when I was in the cinema I was actively thinking why did that happen why did that happen why did that happen yeah um, and it's wrapped up in Barbenheimer because I feel like Barbie is even though it's Mattel when you see the movie like it's not really a toy commercial like it's meta and they send up Mattel but it's like original Greta Gerwig's complete writing directing vision Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan original story based off a real guy writer director vision Mission Impossible is Tom Cruise like in complete control and that's it that's it they just do whatever they want apparently they make it up as they go as long as they have their set pieces I believe that and then Indiana Jones is Disney. So Disney. It's a relic. Yeah, it's it is a it just reeked. Even though James Mangold, the director, is like a good director and there's parts of it that are good, it just reeks of like a big corporation just hands on the wheel for the whole thing. Oh, I totally agree. Wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying here. Yeah. There's why was this movie made? to make money and Harrison Ford may be losing it and he's just saying yes to anything and yeah. they're like this movie will make money We and this is Har- Pete, this, we have this IP can we make any money out of it because we spent a billion fucking dollars getting Star Wars yeah and they need to and they got Lucasfilm and that, oh, speaking of spending money um, Barbie was made for 145 with all practical sets and it looks amazing yeah. Oppenheimer was 100 million all practical presumably looks yeah. amazing Mission Impossible was 170 
pretty much all practical, looks amazing. Indiana Jones was $300 million, like three times as much as two of those movies. I think it looks like garbage. Just, I'm very interested. So my, my biggest point to compare the two, right, is the tuk-tuk I think, chase. I think it's harsh to compare these things. Okay. Because I, I see the three films that you've mentioned, one, one I obviously can't talk to, are better films than this. Yes. But I think I went in after, what for some reason, watching Catching Up With The Indie Movies, just because it was more like we watched one and then it was almost a Disney Plus saying, do you want to watch another? And it's almost like... Sure. I'm making dinner. Let's put it on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, it is background TV. It's like putting on The Office or anything else like and I've seen this so many times it's, it's like let it, it run let it run it's dispensable I can walk in and out of it cool no yeah. worries that's fine there is a huge Indiana Jones billboard on the way to my house maybe that subliminally has worked yes I actually saw a bus sign on the way here that said Indiana Jones out June 28th I'm like oh yeah glad I saw that yeah so and if you watch the Indiana Jones movies like I had in such a quick succession, there's stuff in that that is a bit shaky, doesn't really work. You think about the creative decision. I didn't watch Crystal Skull because I'll never watch that again. Oh, you should. I think it's better. You think it stacks yeah. up? It stacks up. Yeah. Isn't that a nice tie-in with Oppenheimer as well, with <laughs> yeah. the, the atomic sense? It stacks up. And so if you take it with the idea of taking from the originals, there's things that don't work in these films. And they're a bit sort of like ham-fisted and this is a bit dumb and all sense of believability is gone. Just fucking go with it. I think... I think and maybe that was the attitude I took in. sort of. Maybe, yeah, maybe I expected too much because um, I rewatched the other ones as well. And maybe because we watched them as, a kid, as kids and it was like you kind of accept all that stuff. But there's, there's a point that I wanted to bring up in this movie, right, where... They're in the library and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's the best part of this movie. Yes. We can, we can talk about that in a second. Put second. her in anything. Yeah, she's easily yeah. the best part. There's a point where she first steals the Dial of Destiny yes. off Indy and they all give chase. And Boyd Holbrook's character has just shot and killed two completely random secretaries. Makes no sense. Shot and killed them. Like they happen to walk in. Bang, he bang. shoots them. Yeah. Now, Phoebe Waller-Bridge runs off with the Dial Indiana Jones gets stuck on a platform. Boyd Holbrook runs past him, could have easily gone bang and kept running, but he just doesn't even look at him. He's just standing on a platform next to him. He just runs past him and keeps going. I was like, immediately, I was like, why didn't you just shoot him there? That's the same with a lot of movies, but like, it was so obvious. Put Indy anywhere else in this massive room so they can't see him and shoot him, but they literally run within half a meter of each other. And Boyd Holbrook just keeps going, just doesn't bother. Like, come on! But that is also the indie that movies. Happens. Yeah. Yes, it happens and a lot. And it's dumb. And it's like I can, I hard agree with you. But I liked Harrison Ford riding a horse through Midtown Chicago. It was cool parts. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> and I think that was the thing I took away. It was almost like I'm really pleased I got to see 80 year old Harrison Ford ride a horse through a parade. Do you think it was him, or do you think it was face replacement? No, I think Harrison Ford does his own shit. Still at the age of eighty, I think he would like. He'd say, "Put me on the horse." Yeah, yeah. It's Harrison Ford, babe. Yeah, like yeah, it's true. old school Hollywood. He's he's doing everything. So my my biggest thing, and like you said, it's hard to compare. 
But comparing the the tuk-tuk car chase in Indiana Jones, which is all just blurry CGI background. It's a, it's a bit of a mess and the geography of the scene is... Makes no sense. Well, the, you, good ones show you the geography or there's an understanding of the geography here it's not even interested in that yeah but also some of the indiana jones movies when there's when there were chases as well and then compare that to the um handcuff chase scene in dead reckoning which was like that just was 10 minutes of me just laughing like smile on my face like this is slapstick like great action stunts real like funny good stuff so my question about mission possible is do you think that that this film was quite influenced by um fast and the furious no you don't think so no because they were doing it before and it's all practical i don't don't that stupid car scene uh, you didn't like the yellow i hated it oh my god we're so different on this i I was I hated it, it and I thought the train sequence at the end was predictable by the numbers, uninteresting. Uh, Why were they on an old-timey train? I'm sure there's old-timey trains in Europe. But why is Tom Cruise choosing to that? He was on the Eurostar in 1996 (laughs) in Mission Impossible 1. That's true. The old steam train that they just like knock off some uh, levers and it keeps going. It's coal! (laughs) Let him be on an old-timey train. I just don't understand some of the decisions that were made in that. And I just... The, your point is correct where there was slapstick in there. That's what I say. Why? So you didn't like... Once the train starts going over the edge and him and Hayley Atwell are literally like climbing carriage to carriage and every carriage has like different obstacles like they get through a kitchen and they get through like the piano room and stuff and each time you think they're going to make it they have another one to climb through where you just a bit like oh maybe this that sounds like a video game that's uncharted it is uncharted apparently it was exactly from uncharted is it yeah. there you go yeah. i haven't seen uncharted but i've played it that's what that is yeah it's a video game and i was almost like i you could see everything in a video game is by design deliberate in the sense that that will come at you later on or you can use that tool and you can I was see like, it flash and you have to press a button and jump out and, of the way. Yeah, and that's that's what it felt like. And I and I know a lot of people like that and I was almost like, whatever. I loved it. Where there was other bits of the film which I really, really liked. Let's talk about AI as a villain. Does it function? I didn't understand any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were supposed to. I think they gave no, a shit. That was, I don't know what they were thinking making AI a villain like and why the whatever his name was the bad guy um Jesus I don't know (laughs) Raul (laughs) I don't know why like why the AI most unmemorable villain (laughs) it's like um yeah I'm doing everything because this AI god tells me to or whatever a Mediterranean man in like well-fitting suits yeah Yeah. with a a neckerchief around his neck never seen that acting in my life (laughs) with a lot of um knife play just getting real knifey there was a lot of callbacks to the first film which I liked yes there was like Kettridge being back that was such a like I loved seeing him on screen I don't know who that actor is uh Henry Cherney when I was when he turned up, I was almost like oh, fucking all in. Do you think these movies know? My, my one of my criticisms, like I really loved it, but one of my criticisms is that they know a bit too much about their own history. Because like that room, we haven't seen Kittredge since the first movie, 
and he's still in the, the he's still in the still CIA. Had, still, yeah. still had a CIA, and he like they film a five minute conversation shooting at all these different people around the room. And then someone speaks and you realize there's someone in the room that you just haven't seen for this yeah. whole five minutes. And then it reveals Kittredge. You're like, oh, he's been here the whole time. So like they're clearly building that up. And then they do the big like Ethan's the guy under the mask reveal. And it's the same as in five when Alec Baldwin gives that speech where he's like the manifestation of destiny or whatever. It's like, look, these movies are good. I'm not sick of them, but like you're a bit up your own ass a little bit. I don't mind that. You like those parts. I like that. I liked everything that was meta about one. There was callbacks to like Claire. Yeah. And then who's the actress? I can't even remember the characters anymore. It's just Ethan Hunt and miscellaneous. Yeah. The, who's the actress that silo? Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Who's her character again? Uh, Ilsa. (laughs) Ilsa Faust. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Did you hate that she died oh I, you could see it from a mile away I hated it As, well she's such a great character well she's she's a great actress she's so watchable it's why Silo was successful such a good show you know what I mean without yeah. her that show is a bit clunky and a bit shit EP on that show there you go so you've taken her out and then replaced her with Hayley Atwell does a job absolute think, smoke show I think Hayley Atwell's great and yes, she's amazing to look at. But I thought she was really good too. I just kind of didn't... I didn't... It was so weird. And I think a lot of it was like... They were the first film to go back during the pandemic. Yeah. So you can kind of see that they might have... And, and There's definitely sequences, yes. You can sense that. And you can sense like the stories come out where like Cruz and Macquarie, the director, like have their big things they want to do. And then everything else, they're kind of just making it up as they go. Compare the nightclub scene in Fallout when they're in Paris and compare that to this Venice scene. There's nobody at this Venice no. nightclub. No. The, I mean, why, why would anyone go? Because the party was apparently put on by the AI. <laughs> according, to the, yeah, according to Raul. Lame party. Jesus. Where the Fallout one, that was like, do you remember like the Batman rave? Yeah, Those uh, John Wick rave. Every yeah. John Wick has a rave. Um, hey, that was great. I didn't. Yeah, the, to her and the point of Rebecca Ferguson, like he had, he's meant to be like with Ilsa now. And as soon as that happens, she's dead. Yeah, they're meant to yeah. be together. But the second Haley Atwell's in it, like him and her and Cruz, like have all this chemistry and they're like hugging and working together and stuff. And you're like. Is Ilsa Faust still in this movie? Because she leaves for like an yeah. hour and a half and then she comes back for 20 minutes and dies. And then he's back with Hayley Atwell again. I'm like, why Why did this happen? Like, awesome. Why couldn't Ilsa have just been the Hayley Atwell character? I don't know. Is, did was, she not want to be in the movies anymore? It was contractual? Probably. Well, Jeremy Renner didn't want to come back. And they I'm offered, waiting for him to come back. That, well, they offered him to come back and have a death scene in the first half an hour. Yes, I did hear that. And he's like, no, I'm not going to come back to die. But he still has one on his contract, so hopefully he's back for part two. Part two, where he he can die in a submarine. Yeah, part two, which they were meant to film at the same time, and we're now eight months from its release date, and they're still filming. Because because Macquarie and Cruz make it up as they go. No notes. No notes. No, he's the the production company. What did you think of that Hunt for Red October sort of scene stealer in the first ten minutes? Didn't love it. I was almost like, I think I broke Sam's arm from how much I was nudging her. That's like, it's 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 time for Red October. They did the exact same thing where they 
start speaking in Russian yes. with English subtitles. And they've also and got they, the two keys. And then they merge them together and suddenly they're speaking English. I I like the, the usual Mission Impossible setup of like something's in motion and then Ethan Hunt comes out and does something cool and then the credits roll. So I was a bit like, I agree with that. Submarine? It's not what I expected. I was waiting for a mask to come off and it's Ethan Hunt. I was almost like, can Alec Baldwin come back yeah, please yeah. To, to do the Jack Ryan role here? Yeah. Um, so can I pitch something to you? Yeah. Can we get Jack Ryan and Ethan Hunt going like head to head or some shit like that? Uh, who's playing Jack Ryan now? Is it John Krasinski? Or do you want Alec Baldwin as an old Jack Ryan? Yeah, can we AI scrub Alec Baldwin? Speaking of AI scrubbing, go back to Indiana Jones for a sec. The first 20 minutes? Yeah. What do you think? I Talking think about AI scrub. Yeah. AI scrubbing, so obviously... And that feeds straight into what is actually happening now on the ground too. So that's apparently why that movie cost $300 million because like reports are that they pay, they had like a hundred VFX artists work for a year to make him look younger. I think we don't need to worry about de-aging technology yet because like it was the best that I've seen so far about making someone younger and it still was like so lifeless. You can just see in his eyes that he's looking nowhere. If you can't... Make him look 40, but not, not, but also sound 40. you got a problem. Sound. That was going to be my next point. That every time he spoke, I'm like, that is 82-year-old <laughs> Harrison Ford speaking. It's like, he hasn't got a sore throat. He's just old. Yeah. And, and the, like, whenever there was, like, movement and action and stuff, you just see his face just, like, morph so much. I'm like, yeah, we're not in any trouble for I AI. think there was a there um, was a moment where it was a, it was a wide shot. And... Indy was running along the top of the train. Yes. But there was a moment where it was jolting, bit like limbs for days everywhere. Yep. This is I not a, that exact same. This this joke works way more in a visual context rather than an audio context, but doesn't matter. Really flailing. Yeah, and it's almost like that is not how a human runs. No. Um, I I think that we don't need to worry about AI and um, so Brian Cranston can sort of pack up and go home. Yeah, he wants to go on break anyway. He's good. Uh, Boyd Holbrook. Uh, what is he doing in this movie? Weird. <laughs> he is the main guy, the main bad guy in uh, Logan. Yeah. Uh, the other James Mangold movie. And he's so good and he's great in everything. He's, he's menacing in Logan. He's like, it's almost like Terminator where yeah. this guy just keeps on coming back and he's ruthless and evil and he embodies all of that. And here it's almost like, what... What I don't I understand. Yeah, he had like twenty lines. Yeah, he was literally like, and, and the character's doing stuff that defies logic. Yes, he's was he like a, a CIA agent who went rogue? Like, what was the the whole f- like unexplored subplot of the fact that uh, Mads Mikkelsen's Nazi character was a Nazi, but now he's working for the U.S. government? And like the the black lady right. was his handler for the CIA, yeah. and then he just kills her. It's like, okay. Could we got Oppenheimer in there? Sort of like, could we have roped all of this thing together? Yeah. Uh, what, what else did you... What did you... Because you, when you came out of Indiana Jones, you were like, good movie. I enjoyed it. Have you changed... Have you changed your mind? I thought for spending $25 for a ticket, I had a good time. Okay. And it means... And the film... And it means nothing. means nothing. <laughs> I had a really good time at 3pm at the Cremorne Orpheum. Yep. For two, for two and a half hours... Had a box of popcorn, had a drink, great. 
Do not need to think about that film ever again. Yeah. Do not need to see it again. Had a great two and a half hours. That's it. I There were moments that I was like, I'm enjoying this. And then there were just other moments that maybe I'm just being too critical where I was like, what the fuck is this movie? Um, one moment that I loved when it happened and then it was over too quickly was Indiana Jones going back in time. Loved it. Loved it. Good. I was just like, I just, I just smiled. I'm like, fuck it. He's done like so much. He's seen the Ark of the Covenant. He's drunken from the Grail. Why can't he just if he's go back in time? If he's Grail, shouldn't he be immortal? No. <laughs> I, Please I've, explain. I've heard uh, arguments about this very point. I think we got to retcon this. I think it doesn't work because he took uh, the Grail past the seal in the Knights Temple. So, do you remember how yes, they're like? I know Il- uh, Ilsa, Elsa from that movie. Yeah, anyone who's German, just or Austrian. She's Austrian, but, Austrian. but the actress is Irish. Yes, I did hear that. Uh, she's going backwards with the growl. Like, also, really problematic that he's that she is nineteen in that film, and Harrison Ford is certainly forty. Um, I mean, is it? that bad or is it worse that Sean Connery is 52 and he's also slept with her yeah but only in writing yeah <laughs> only through the power of dialogue that's true yeah um yeah well what do we talk about when we did the Harrison Ford Hall of Fame that Sean Connery and Harrison Ford were like 12 years difference in that movie unless <laughs> Sean Connery's 52 he looks like 80 like Harrison Ford now looks the same age as Sean Connery in that movie yes yes but Harrison Ford going back in time, great. Loved it. And, and the whole, I did like the running gag about Nazis. It, it showed Indy as like he, this grumpy old, old crone still sort of chasing Nazis and the boogeyman is Nazis and they're everywhere. He says it so much. And it, it becomes his running joke. It's like, okay, dad, no worries. It's boomer. <laughs> it's boomer chat. It did is. You, did you notice the point... Uh, they're climbing up the wall to get out of one place and he's talking about how he's drunk the blood of Carly. And yeah, I'm like, oh, call back to Temple of Doom. Yeah, I like (laughs) that. That's a deep cut because not that many people (laughs) going back to watch Temple. Um, And what do you think of Mads Mikkelsen? I love Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was overqualified for what he was given to I agree. Yeah. I think Mads Mikkelsen's great and everything. I think they should bring back Hannibal, um, which is one of the great TV I think shows. Hollywood saw Casino Royale once and it's like, we've got him for the next 20 years. Um, lock him down. Yeah. Uh, just a side, uh, have you ever watched Another Round? No. That This is like a completely random thing. It's not in English. It's in Mads Mikkelsen's native language, wherever he's from. Finn? Netherlands? Uh, okay, let's go with that. Scandinavia. Scandinavia. <laughs> um, and it's about a bunch of guys. Mads is the lead, but it's about four friends who read a paper that uh, essentially a scientist, real scientist did that says that humans are not meant to be sober. They're meant to function at like 0.05% uh, blood alcohol. That sounds like Matthew McConaughey all the time. Because it's ba- not to get science corner, but it's like essentially when we evolved because apes dropped from the tree and ate fermented fruit... Which had is that right? Which had alcohol. So the only reason we evolved is because they did that. And so anyway, they start. It's like how anybody plays pool or darts better if they like yeah. two beers. But deep. it's like a real fine point. And that's what this movie is about. They all these guys get their blood alcohol to point zero five, and they have like the best time, and they're like working so much better. So they start upping it, and shit goes wrong. 
Anyway, but also 0.5, that is like two beers in on like a summer afternoon straight after work. And you how don't, good? How good do you feel? It's the best. And then like you don't... I think this is what happens when you must hit like mid-30s and get perspective in life. It's almost like that's it. But the, what will you do if you're younger than that is you just chase it. You keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it'll come back. Um, you said mid thirty. Should I get that perspective at some I don't point? Know. Or don't worry about it. We're working on separate timelines here, man. Your wife's one week away from having a kid, and that's when you get the perspective. Um, uh, maybe it's inbuilt. I don't know. Uh, one other thing, like this Indiana Jones movie. Uh, you know when they're on the boat and uh, Helena, Helena, Phoebe Waller Bridge, like gives them all the Fleabag, tablet. Yeah. Let's run Fleabag, back. Yeah. Gives them all the tablet information. Then they blow up the boat and they get away. And Indy's like, why do you give him all the information? She's like, I didn't. I gave him the wrong location. Yeah. And you think, oh, great. She did something smart. She gave him the wrong location. They're getting away. And then Mads Mikkelsen just picks up a pair of binoculars and looks at them and goes, they're turning. <laughs> and then they turn up on the same location. Yeah. Like, there's... You don't care. There's, no, no, no. I, no, I actually agree with you. There's actually creative decisions that were made here, which are actually like, oh, okay, whatever. But like because I, it's an indie movie. It's an indie movie. You suspend that, and you sort of like you know that there's going to be issues, not issues, but like you just have to suspend your belief, or there will be slapstick things going on. Where my problem with Mission Impossible is, Fallout set such a high bar that I don't think Dead Reckoning could ever meet it, and that the slapstick stuff took me immediately out of the film, and that did feel like that that car chase to Rome great, but it's like. Well, didn't we see this in Paris? And the Paris one was better. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? And you, like, I'm coming from it where I love the first one with... Well, actually, before before you do that, um, just to wrap up, I was going to say, do you want to... Like, it's all over the internet. Should we try to rank just really quick? Like, off the top of your head, rank the Mission Impossible movies. Sure. We have talked about this the other day that... We have really good recollection of some, and then some others. Fuck, is that is was that the same movie, or was like did those two things have, have our in our collective memory become just the one movie? I feel like in three of them, it's just the Kremlin explosion, and I've just merged those films together. <laughs> That's exactly. People always say the first Christopher McQuarrie, which is Rogue Nation, which is five. Everyone's always like, "What a fantastic movie!" I can't remember any of that. It's movie. the Burj Khalifa and. Um, the Kremlin, the same movie. Yes, good. That that movie has Burj Khalifa, Jeremy Renner, Kremlin exploding, um, the big screen that Simon Pegg's face goes on. Alec the Baldwin st- talk, giving a monologue in a tunnel. Yep. Uh, no, that's Fallout. Um, <laughs> but he's. I feel like he's given monologues in a lot of. Gives, yeah, he gives lots yeah. of monologues. Uh, it has the sandstorm. It has the finale in the car park that moves all the cars yeah. around. That's my number one. All the big sort of set pieces, which sort of... You talked recently that you liked three as your favourite. No, four, four is my favourite, which is which is that one we're talking about. So what's Bird's five? Five is Christopher McQuarrie's first one, which is... Um, what happens? It has like the underwater swimming part. It opens with him hanging off the side of the plane. Who's the baddie in... Okay, right. Sorry, this is complicated. Yeah, I know. That's why I was like, should we try to rank them? Okay, here? let's do it. Because I watched MI2 and I fucking loved it. Give me the John Woo four-hour cut, man. <laughs> um, Limp Biscuit. 
Five's bad guy is the bad guy in Fallout, but he's like thin and wiry and has glasses. Is and he then one of the worst? The is he one of the worst villains? No, no, the worst villain's four. Even though four's my favorite. So who is the villain in four? Because that is yeah. The, the, vi- the set pieces in that film are the, the movie. Well, but it's also what is now famous. I'm sorry, I'm just sipping bourbon, by the way. <laughs> it's not flip at all. Yeah. Um, the set pieces in that film are, I think, what you would now trademark as Mission Impossible. That, those are the things that come straight to mind from our collective memory and then the helicopter stuff in Fallout. But even though I think the helicopter stuff in Fallout is probably the best stuff. So the bad guy in 4 is just some random Russian guy. He's like kind of old and he wants to release nuclear warheads. And there's like satellites and they end up in India. Yes. Okay. That's the one with Leah Sadu as well. Right. That whole great okay. sequence with the eye scanner and the diamonds. Um, Sawyer from Lost is in the first two minutes and dies, but should have been in it longer. Okay. There's a lot in that movie. Well, let's go. So let's... Four, four is my number one. I'll do my. Oh, no, let's 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 work in reverse. So where are you going with seven? There are seven movies, right? Seven. Yes. Dead Reckoning would be about fourth. Okay, so I'm just gotta I gotta get this open in front of me, man. Like I, I it's hard to work in reverse and try to think of where you place them because I don't know where the positions are. Worst name? Worst name is Well it's hard because the first three just have numbers. Yeah, I know. Um Best Name is Ghost Protocol. Sounds good. What the hell does that mean? But it's great, Ghost Protocol. I think Dead Reckoning is the worst name. It probably doesn't work as well where Fallout, that's very clear. Rogue Nation is sort of interesting and Ghost Protocol. So do you want to, how about, we, do you want to, we'll start from the top. So you've said Ghost Protocol. And I'm going Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> you're in. No, you're not. Your number one movie. Uh, do, do we want to have fun with this or not? <laughs> sure. No, we can't because we're an, over an hour long. We should, next week we'll do TV shows. And I'll watch Mission Impossible 2 and we'll talk about Mission Impossible 2. Okay. Because I messaged you in Bali about Mission Impossible 2. (laughs) I think I was at a beach club, probably like five espresso martinis deep, just like, fuck yeah, Mission Impossible (laughs) 2. And you were just going on a rant. I'm sending you screen grabs of Tom Cruise jumping from a helicopter and then there's the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background. It's like, this is fucking sick. (laughs) Sydney Olympics is great. Was that around the same time? Well, uh, well, not, I think 1999 or 2001. So, so one year before or after. No, so Mission Impossible 2, May 24, 2000. So and it was just it, before the Sydney just Olympics. Just before the Olympics. It's like, hey, world, get ready. We're going to Sydney. <laughs> um, where do you put one? One is my favourite. Yes. Because of what... I, you're more into the set pieces than I am. And that's fine. But I really like what's happening in there, the, the sort of psychosexual sort of thing going on with the masks. And I think they do it best. And the weird sort of... Best use of masks in that one. European spy bullshit. Fucking love that. Yeah. I, I, I went, um, just to finish up, I went... Can I just ask a question just really quick? So the white... Is it the white rabbit? Is that the character, right? No, that's... Um, that's the Matrix. So who's the character... Who's the... The arms dealer in all the new Mission Impossibles. Um, White Russian? 
I can't remember, but it's Max's daughter. It is Max's daughter. Yeah, it, yeah. That is my question. Yeah, yeah. She is playing Vanessa Redgrave's daughter. Yes. She's fucking nailing it. Yes. Um, oh, what's that actress's name? Can't remember. Maybe it is the White Rabbit. I don't know what they call I it. think so. Okay. All I'm thinking is the rabbit from Matrix. Yeah. But, but uh, number Mission Impossible 1 is my third after Ghost Protocol and Fallout. And then three, which I think is underrated, but that's just Philip Seymour Hoffman being the best bad guy in the entire yeah, series. Yeah, where it's almost like I've put a bomb in your brain. Yeah. I I don't like that JJ film as much just because I don't like the palette. It's very bright. It's very and bright and white. It's very bright, or then it goes really fucking dark and grimy yeah. and green. Like those Shanghai scenes are so... Like, he, he's turned the grime up to a thousand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, I've, I had it here. So it is Gabrielle. So I wasn't far off with Jesus. <laughs> and then Grace is Hayley Atwell. That's right. Oh, where is it? It's Oh, she's in the additional. So it's her name. Yeah, there's so many cast members in that movie. Does, no, it's not here. But what? why is... Okay, what I don't get is she's not on the proper cast list here. But Marilla... Mar- Mar- I'm going to say Maria Garriga as Marie, a woman from Ethan and Gabrielle's past seen only in brief flashback, comes up as a major feature on the Wikipedia page. Hey, she plays, uh, for someone that we've never seen in this film series before ever, she plays a major role in that movie. And that should have been Julia Roberts. DH Julia Roberts. Yes. I don't know why they wanted DH Julia Roberts. I would have Julia loved Roberts. that because like Julia Roberts would have done Mission Impossible in 1994. Is like the whole sort of in theory yeah. pitch. They like, couldn't. They didn't put Tom Cruise's DH face in those scenes. So I don't know why they'd get DH Julia <laughs> Roberts. Um, we should probably wrap it up there. Has Tom Cruise drunk from the Grail? I actually. This is a good point. I actually think he gets his face airbrushed in movies. Okay. Think about that because. He looks great in the Mission Impossible he movies. He looks fucking old at that premiere. But you see him at premieres and he looks old. I think he is using money out of his own pocket. He's a producer, maybe out of the budget, to have one person sit there and airbrush him every single frame. Sounds like Warnie. Oh, I don't bring Warnie up again. That was the last podcast we did was ragging on that show. <laughs> uh, next week, we oh, will do... That's, that's very ambitious, but let's go. Oh, of course. You might have a baby next to a baby. <laughs> Solo pod. Um, if if we do it, we'll do the bear. Um, I've got so much TV to talk about. Bear is awesome. We'll talk about Mission Impossible 2. And have you watched Hijack? No. Oh, my God. Watch Hijack. Apple TV, Idris Elba. Can we make 9-11 jokes? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, the, the whole plot will be 9-11 jokes. I've got some interesting shows to talk about. I want to talk about the class of 09 that nobody has seen. No one's watched that. But no, talk to me about it. Yeah, I've got, I've got some thoughts. I watched all of it. Okay. Um, other than that, we're done. Good to be back. There we go. Thanks, mate. Is this... Does like the podcast, podcast explode now in like the next five seconds? Yeah, please. <laughs>